the way Baba Muktananda began his talks by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisan Mane Kesat Pemse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that was the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with love. So in that spirit, welcome. <clears throat> and tonight we have a great delight of exploring the words of one of the most important figures of 20th century Indian spirituality, our very own Bhagwan Nityananda. <coughs> Bhagwan Nityananda was born in South India sometime in the late 19th century. And uh, as a young man, he migrated to the north, uh, traveled extensively. No one really knows where he went. Certainly spent time in the Himalayas. It's rumored that he went to foreign countries like Burma and so on. Uh, but he eventually settled down in the Ganeshpuri area. He moved around a little bit and ended in the, what's the, uh, the village of Ganeshpuri. And this particular picture is very dear to my heart because it was Baba's favorite meditation posture. It's a photograph that he had a painting made of this. And then later when he decided to put a statue or a murti uh, in his ashram, he used this pose as the, the pose of Bhagwan. And uh, Baba would always describe Bhagwan Nityananda as being in Bhairavi Muja, Shambhavi Muja, where the eyes are open, but the attention is focused inwardly. And because of that powerful inner stance, the mind would be completely silent. And this was uh, demonstrated in this, in this uh, posture. So what else do you have? And there you see Bhagwan Nityananda walking in his ashram, which is called Telas Nivas. It's in the town of Ganeshpuri. And uh, we visited there frequently when we, uh, when we visited Ganeshpuri. In those ancient days when one could visit Ganeshpuri. Um, and uh, he's walking up and down the hallway. Next. And this also is in uh, Telas Nivas. He, his uh, chair with the funny wings uh, and the chair is right there in, uh, in Kailas Nivas. There's Bhagwan. Uh, I wonder if he's giving a talk there, some sort of talk. Is that it? Okay, Bhagwan Nityananda. So you can say that uh, he's an unusual looking person. And when I first got to Baba's ashram, I looked around and there were photographs of this naked. Swami everywhere, 
And the main picture in the front of the, the chanting hall was a picture of Bhagwan Nityananda in that pose that we saw before, which later, later in the year became uh, a, a statue was brought in and <clears throat> into that. And I thought, what an odd-looking person. Um, and he was indeed an odd person, a yogi of the highest attainment. Um, we don't know much really about his life. He grew up in South India, as I said. Uh, Baba used to always say that he was uh, realized from birth, that he was enlightened. He carried his enlightenment from a previous birth into this one. Uh, and yet we know that he did sadhana, did spiritual practices, but he attained the ultimate easily. <clears throat> and then uh, when he was in South India, in, probably in his 20s, uh, he, there was a devotee there who thought, I want to write down his words. You know, we value the guru's words. And me, I'm, I feel very wealthy because uh, my guru's words are captured in uh, many, many dozens of books. Uh, and uh, aside from the words that I heard, but uh, there are the words that we have in these texts. And so whenever I want to, I can open one of those books and I connect to that stream of matraka, that stream of, of language that uh, Lilavati was talking about that comes from the guru's lips, these sublime teachings, but actually they come from another plane of consciousness. So Bhagavan Nityananda was a man of few words. He didn't lecture. Uh, he didn't uh, give formal discourse. He didn't have courses or classes. Uh, but occasionally he made remarks. And we're very lucky that uh, Tulsiyama copied some of these down. And because of that, we do have some of his teachings. And they were collected. You could say they're the Nityananda Sutras the Nityananda aphorisms. Uh, they call it the Chittakash Gita, or the song, the song of the upper spaces of consciousness, which, since Bhagavan Nityananda was always absorbed in the highest consciousness, perfectly suitable. So these are from those early remarks of Bhagavan Nityananda, <coughs> the, the uh, Chittakash Gita. All right, here we go. First one. To a good man, every man is good. Everything is good. A person becomes good by his own effort. That's it. <laughs> Wonderful statement. <clears throat> a couple of interesting statements there. First of all, what do we mean by a good man? To a good man, everything is good. First of all, he's saying what Baba would quote often, the, the Yoga Vashishtha, the world is as you see it. That we see outside us not really an objective world, but a reflection of our own consciousness. So that when we're in a good mood, everything looks wonderful. When we're in a bad mood, everything looks miserable. We think we're being objective, but actually uh, we're reflecting our own state of consciousness. So a person with a good vision, a good, a good man, he means a, a person who's attained the self, who sees things with love and with compassion, 
Everything is good. The world is good because the world is created by the divine. So how can it be bad? <clears throat> but to get that vision is no joke. It's not easy. To purify our vision, to purify the doors of perception, as William Blake said, is um, no joke. You have to work on it. It doesn't just happen unless you're a born Siddha, like Bhagwan Nityananda or Ramana Maharshi. Um, you have to do some work. You have to do some sadhana, some spiritual practice. A person becomes good by his own effort. We transform ourselves through effort, through our own effort. And so we have to make a choice to see the world properly, not to indulge those tendencies where we want to be negative about everything, paranoid about everything, backwards about everything. But instead, we, we, we discipline ourselves and we move away from thought forms and ways of thinking that contract us and bring us down. And we move towards those thought forms that uplift us. Then we become a good man. And then we see the world as good <coughs> and we attain. Another one. Bhagavan Nityananda says, you must not leave the feet of the guru. Your mind should not flicker like the reflection of the sun in shaking water. <laughs> I love that language. The reflection of the sun in shaking water. Water that's agitated. The wind is blowing, water's agitated. And so the sun is reflected in that water and it, it shakes, it flickers. And our mind is not stable. Our mind is not stable. It's always going back and forth. I should do this, I should do that, I should do this, I should do that. And because of that, our life is a mess. He says, we should be stable in our dedication to the highest. That's what the feet of the guru represent. To stay with that dedication to the highest, and then our minds will become strong. <clears throat> and also, it doesn't mean you can't leave the physical presence of the guru but you shouldn't leave the psychological presence, the psychic presence, the spiritual presence of the guru. You should always be in connection with that because to be in connection with the guru is to be in connection with higher consciousness and the true self. Another one. <clears throat> this is a marvelous, this is very Bhagwan-esque. <clears throat> Bhagwan says, Look for the all-pervading God in the head. That's uh, only if you gave me that statement, said who said that, I would not guess Schopenhauer or Nietzsche or uh, Plato or Pythagoras or Buddha. It could only be Bhagwan Nityananda. Look for the all-pervading God in the head. Truly, look at him in the head. Hence enjoy the eternal bliss. See his creation in the heart. You look for God in the head and you see his creation in the heart. 
not much you can say about that. It's extraordinary. The only thing we can do with that is to do a garner. That finished Davy Ma off, that one. <laughs> is he there in your head, Davy Ma? See, that's, she's doing that. <clears throat> Let's do a dharana. Let's just do what, what Bhagwan said. Look for the all-pervading God in the head. Truly, he says. Truly! Look at him in the head. All right? Just look inside. God in the head. Okay, let's open our eyes. Did you see any signs of God in the head? Anybody? Anybody see a sign of God in the head? Raise your hand. Tell me. What did you see? Elation? Elation. Okay, good. Did he show up in any other way to anyone else? No? Peace in the head, yeah? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> there is a very powerful light also. Okay, ready? Ah, this one. This is a little longer. A man is born a man's birth is from his parents. He is a, first a child, and then he grows to manhood, and himself becomes the parent of children. There's the whole life story right there. Born, grows up, goes to land. The difference is due to time. I always think Bhagwan is seeing things in an almost childlike manner. Like, yeah, so look, there's a, he, here's a, a little infant that's been brought. There is his parents, and Bhagwan's looking, and he thinks, look, that little kid is going to grow up and then be a parent and come with another little kid. Well, the only difference between them is time. It's just time. Time's the only difference. They're the same. This little kid and the big parents, same. Only time. <clears throat> then he goes on. The nature of the child is affected by the thoughts of the parents. Whether it is devotion, deceit, anger, activity, desire. So the importance of parenting, the environment of the home, <clears throat> the nature of the child is affected by those vibrations, those thought forms. A home full of anger affects the child one way. A home full of love affects the child a different way. Bhagwan says, life begins when vayu, the life breath, enters the womb. I guess that's at fertilization. If the parents think of this world or of the, ne or of the next world, the child will have the same inclination. I think that's a double meaning. One is that he's talking about 
the general tendency of the parents, if the parents are spiritual, then the child will be spiritual. Uh, but if not, the child will go in a different direction. And it could also mean at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, what's on the parent's mind at that very moment? <clears throat> he says, if the thought is of the next world, <coughs> sudden enlightenment is possible. If, if a person's thinking of God at, at conception, the child can become suddenly enlightened. <coughs> or if, uh, if the household is full of devotion, then that can happen. It's a, that's an interesting, interesting one. You like that? All right, here's another. I love the simple, naive statement, and then you see where he's going with it. If you're afraid of water, you cannot cross a river in a boat. If you're afraid of fire, you cannot heat water. You can't make tea. <clears throat> Fear must be banished. To accomplish anything worth doing, one must be thoroughly fearless. For a thing to be done, you must have courage. And that's it. Basically, it's have courage. Rah, rah, rah. But you could see that he was observing something. I imagine Bhagwan sitting there and seeing the only problem with that person is they're full of fear. And that's why they can't achieve anything, do anything, function anyway. So Bhagwan's solution is don't have fear. In his, from where he stands, that's very simple to say that. But for most of us, that's a long struggle. <clears throat> let's do a, uh, let's do a little contemplation on fearlessness. One of the great, great, great yogic qualities. I would say that our modern world is characterized by fear. Everybody's afraid of something. Everybody's desperately afraid. So let's do it, approach it two ways. One is the attitude, I am fearless. I am fearless. Let's go inside and say to yourself, I am fearless. Okay, <clears throat> take that strong stance. And now another approach to it, um, the approach of Tanglen, where you attain fearlessness by breathing in that which you fear. This is a great act of fearlessness because instead of running and recoiling from it, usually things that we're afraid of, we recoil from. 
We run from, we avoid it. And because we avoid that thing, we become contracted and that thing has power over us. So our whole life is spent avoiding and then strategies of avoidance and because that we get more and more contracted and so on. <clears throat> when I was a, a kid, uh, one of my friends was terrified of one of the kids that lived a few blocks away. So he would always plot walking around you know, the neighborhood missing that block and you know, always trying to avoid this guy's whole life was based on strategies of avoiding that person. And we spend our whole lives like that, avoiding this and avoiding that. So the approach of Tonglen, which is a, a, a Tibetan Buddhist practice, is to breathe in whatever it is you're afraid of and then breathe out blessings. Because we're strong enough to, ex to accept anything. We're strong enough, we're much stronger than we think we are. Whatever comes up and arises in life, we're strong enough to deal with that. So let's do that now. Whatever fears you have, whatever difficulties you have, just breathe them in. The future, a lot of people are afraid of the future. What might happen? And our minds run amok. Bad things are going to happen. Breathe in the future and breathe out a blessing. Breathe in what you fear. Breathe out a blessing. As Bhagwan says, for anything to be done, you must have courage. Okay, we go on to another. <clears throat> Here's another one. And based on some observations of Bhagwan. He wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't do abstract philosophy, but he did what I would call village philosophy. He would be there in the village and he'd watch different things happen in the village. And then he would have some kind of general teaching emerge from that. So here's another one. When we're little children, we do not know who is our father and who is our mother. When we grow up, we come to know our parentage. We know we get to see our, know our parents as people. They're just sort of this godlike force when we grow up, when we're little kids. Later we see what they are. When a chicken eats, <laughs> it scratches everything towards itself with its feet. That's a very strange mind that jumps from that first idea to that one. Similarly, when a man's intellect is developed, he becomes selfish. You have to, I, I always try in these aphorisms, like, I think, what might he have seen that brought all these strange things together? He saw chicken scratching in the street. He saw a selfish person. He saw a little child. Anyway, <clears throat> we, uh, a little infant is not selfish, but 
an, a grown, an adult is, is selfish like the chicken, wants everything to come to himself. Every day, men die. Every day, men are born. But rarely do they burn up their selfishness. So I would say that he saw some act of selfishness and he started to go off on it. Where does it, like he was asking, where does that come from? When does it develop? It develops as a child matures. And chickens have it too. And people grow it. Not infants, but they grow it. <clears throat> but rarely do they burn up their selfishness. Selfishness disappears. And then he asks himself, how do you get rid of selfishness? When does it disappear? Selfishness disappears when the individual becomes one with the indivisible. In other words, when we merge with God, when we become one with consciousness, with the self, then you get rid of selfishness. And now a wonderful illustration, <clears throat> which I can't, it's beyond my um, pay grade to understand completely, is from rice, various kinds of food are prepared, such as halwa and ambada. <clears throat> These dishes are not called rice. That's it. <laughs> That's the, the ending of that. These dishes are not called rice. I looked up on butter. It doesn't seem to have much to do with rice, but there must be a, a form of it that, that is. And there are, are halwas that come from rice. Um, so that seems to be, you can only hazard a guess here, it seems to be that, that um, the indivisible is consciousness, is the whole. And then when an individual emerges from that, uh, they're no longer rice. The indivisible is rice, but they don't call it rice anymore, although its essential nature is rice. So when the individual learns that he is rice, then uh, he's there. That's my theory anyway. That's what I think, and I'm standing by it. Another one, another long one, filled with strange uh, imagery. <clears throat> Bhagwan says, a ripe fruit is very sweet to the taste. The same fruit, when it is unripe, is astringent. Both are produced by the same tree. So he's looking, again, naively looking, simply looking with the, you know, the way with the eye of a child in a way, you know, seeing things as they are and putting it together. That, he says, both are produced by the same tree. One is sweet and one is astringent. The difference between the two is caused by, you learned it already. What's the difference between the baby and the time? The difference between is caused by time, same theme. Same theme. I'm right on the right. Just time. <clears throat> a coconut that's planted in the ground does not grow into a tree at once. 
First it sprouts, then it becomes a plant, and finally it becomes a tree. A tender coconut tree can be easily plucked from the ground, but a fully grown coconut tree cannot be easily plucked from the ground. So he's looking, he's having all these thoughts about ripe fruits and unripe fruits and how they're the same, only time is there, and then how the growth process things go through. They become their first, they begin, and then they grow older, and, and a tree gets to be strong and, and firmly rooted in the earth at some point. And he goes now to the spiritual point. So also, our mind must be unaffected, whatever people say to us or whatever they say about us. So we have to be like a, a, a mature coconut tree. Be a mature coconut tree. Don't be shaken by every wind that comes, somebody saying something bad about you. Because I guarantee you, people will say something bad about you. You know, before the internet, no one ever spoke badly about anyone. <laughs> And because of the internet, now we've learned how to speak badly. That's what's happened. It was very pure in the previous days. <laughs> so our minds must be unaffected. Whatever people say about us, again, be strong. Be like a strong coconut tree. Bhagwan says, the mind must always be under our control. This is now a wonderful statement he makes here. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love it. You listening? This is what a man must accomplish in life. This must be the one object in life. Wow. Forget about all those other goals and all those things that we're taught to do. Con Control your mind. Become the master of your mind. That's the one thing, Bhagwan says, we have to accomplish in life. And it's the one thing he accomplished. He's in his little loincloth. <clears throat> and yet, 50 years after he's dead, the same power is, is rolling through uh, the streets of that village and is extended around the world, and we feel it here. This must be the one object of life. This a man must accomplish, even if his head is to be struck off. Even in the guillotine, you should still be in control of your mind. No matter what happens, you should be centered. We should give a blow with the mind itself, not with a cane or a hand or something. Says, how do you control it? You don't whip it, smack it. You use your mind to control the mind. We should learn to tie a man without a rope. Use subtle methods to control the mind. This is what a man should accomplish in life. Tremendous statement. This is what a man should accomplish in life. You could spend your whole life accomplishing that one thing and your life will be worthwhile. You could, uh, you could accomplish, you could build an empire 
a financial empire, or you could become extremely famous and so on, and your life wouldn't have much merit. But if you could conquer your own mind, your life would be worthwhile. That's what Bhagwan Nithinand is saying there. <coughs> uh, should we do one, one more, Sue? Are you Bhagwan out? Are you in Bhagwan zone? Okay. I've got two more. Should we do them? All right. Okay. Here's a little lo longish one. When you have attained perfect peace, there's no necessity of going anywhere. There's no necessity of seeing anything. <clears throat> there is no necessity of going to Kashi, Rameshwara, Gokarna, and other holy places. These are pilgrimages. All is seen in the mind. Going and coming are delusions of the mind. When peace is attained, all appears to be the one. Liberation from bondage is seeing the one in all and the all in one. This is desirelessness. So, so con conversely, okay, so when you attain that state, Bhagavad Nityananda could sit in Ganeshpuri and be perfectly content sit there in the simplest way with his little loincloth and just get up and look around and live his life in perfect contentment. He didn't suddenly say, oh, I have to go to a Crowley. I must see a Crowley. <clears throat> he was perfectly contented. <clears throat> and when you see everything as one, when you see the oneness, when you see the divine, when you see the self, then you don't have that impulse. He says, the thing in the hand must be seen in the hand itself. You cannot find it anywhere else. You're holding something in the hand. I can't look through this anywhere else but in my hand. Well, there, that's there too. <laughs> now, that's not the same one. <clears throat> so, so also, everything must be tested in one's own thought inside oneself. So you have to look inside and find the truth inside yourself, he's saying, not outside. That's a nice one. And finally, last one, then we'll meditate. <coughs> he says, now, before you die, leave the jungle road and follow the royal road. What would the jungle road be and what would be the royal road? The royal road of Raja Yoga. He called his yoga Raja Yoga, Siddha Yoga, Jiva Yoga, same yoga. <coughs> so leave the jungle road, which is the World, the road of worldliness, of mundane, of mundane uh, material world. And follow the royal road, Raja Yoga, the, the road of the self, the road of higher consciousness. The two paths in the world, uh, Nivriti Marg and Pavriti Marg is what they say 
in Sanskrit. The world, the world, the the road of worldliness and the road of the self, higher consciousness. <clears throat> he says, on your deathbed you may suffer if the prana is obstructed by disease. Purify the breath and consciousness now. <laughs> very, in the time of COVID, this is very relevant, isn't it? <clears throat> so you might have trouble with prana when you're old. So when you're young, purify the breath and consciousness. Don't wait to do sadhana later. Baba used to say this all the time to us. says, when you're young and strong, do your sadhana. Now, <clears throat> it, was, it was a fact that, that the Westerners who had come to the Baba's ashram in the early 70s were usually quite young. It could be as early, young as 20 and uh, 20 to 35, you know. Young people who came because they had to travel far distance, they had to have had some resources to do that and so on. Um, but in India, the tradition is that you put off spirituality till the final phase of life, which is after retirement. So Baba would be always calling on them, practice your sadhana now. Do sadhana when you're young, because when you're old, you'll be too infirm to do your sadhana. So do it. And so he's urging people, leave the jungle road, follow the royal road. Don't wait till you're 80 years old to adopt the royal road. Do it now. Leave the jungle road. Doesn't mean you have to give up living the life you're living, but you may have to reorient the way you look at it and incorporate practice into your life. Meditate every day, read the scriptures, attend satsang, and so on. So Bhagwan Nityananda, there you go. What was your favorite one? What, one, what thought will you take away tonight? Just take a moment. What thought did you want to pursue in meditation or reflect on? Was there one? There might have been more than one, but was there one particular one? Who has one? No? Or was Bhagwan's uh, Shakti just sort of obliterate the mind completely? Yeah? No? I've got one, as my father would say, I've got one, but I can't think of it. Baby <laughs> Ma? What was it? Everything's right in front Everything's in your hand. Everything's right in front of me is my Prabhupada's thought. Mm -hmm. Feeling. What? Feeling. Fe Feeling Who does? Billy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. I'll be grounded, she heard, yeah? That's great. Be brave and be grounded. You know what I heard? I heard, look in the head for God. <laughs> I love that. Because if you look in the head, there's a bright light there. Let's meditate. We'll meditate for 10 minutes. I want you to meditate on the God in the head.
I'll help you with it. We'll meditate for 10 minutes and look within. <clears throat> and inside your head, there's a bright light, a brilliant light, overwhelmingly brilliant. It's the light of consciousness. When you look inside your head, you might not see it. It might seem dark to you. But look more closely. It's a light so bright. As you get closer and closer to it, you'll see how absolutely bright that light is. Meditate on that light. That light is the light of divine truth, divine wisdom, divine shakti. This will meditate for 10 minutes. Once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Bhakti Nath, Maharaj, Ki Jai.